But I promise you, having those discussions when the seas are calm, you know, reading that on a screen when you're sitting at home, thinking about the issues, that is so much easier than having those discussions at the end of a phone at three in the morning when a loved one is critically ill. And they are hard topics and they will stir strong feelings. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But equally, it means they are more important than ever to talk about. As we cover the COVID-19 outbreak, we want to hear some of the stories from the front line. And who better to do that than some of the people who write regularly for the BMJ? Over the coming months, we're going to be hearing more from our stable of writers, looking at what's going on in primary care, having conversations between primary and secondary care to really try and get to the heart of what this pandemic is doing to the profession in the UK. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor here at the BMJ, and in this first one we wanted to look specifically at acute care at the sharp end of the response. To do that I'm joined by two of the BMJ's columnists, David Oliver and Matt Morgan. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Could I get you to introduce yourselves? My name is Matt Morgan. I'm an intensive care consultant working at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff. And I've got a side interest as well in research. And that's played out really through this COVID pandemic. And uh, David? Okay, I'm David Oliver. I'm a consultant physician working in geriatrics and uh, acute general medicine at Royal Berkshire. NHS Foundation Trust in Reading. I also write a weekly column in the BMJ and have done various other things in British medicine over the years. Yeah. So you're both, uh, you're an uh, intensivist, Matt, and uh, you're acute, David. So you're at the sort of the sharp end of this at the moment. And um, for people out there who are maybe not in, in such acute medicine, um, what is the what's it like on the ground at the moment what's what's changed um in your in your day-to-day life um david maybe we could get you to go for a second. okay well i think what's happened at my own trust which is about 800 bed hospital has probably been mirrored all around the four nations of the uk and i think people were doing much of it even before any directors came down from the government we knew what was coming downstream And so we reorganized the front door of the hospital to have people in hot and cold streams. So people coming in who might have coronavirus and people who probably didn't. We had escalation plans that we could dedicate certain ward areas to people with proven or suspected coronavirus. And knowing that when the numbers got bigger, we'd have to escalate into more clinical areas. Um, That in turn meant things like um, cancelling a lot of elective and planned work and repurposing people's job plans to cover those acute ward areas. And really importantly, but partly helped by the Coronavirus Act, is working closely with social care and community health services so we could get access to community services uh, a lot more slick and quick. And I know that our primary care colleagues obviously changed the way they've worked um, as well. Um, And so it's been incredible watching how even in the space of a few weeks, people have completely reconfigured what they're doing. Now, Matt can talk more about ICU, but I I know in my own trust, which would usually have 18 beds, initially we've gone up to 35, but we've got the contingency to go up to 
54 and even 72, I think. So a lot of hospitals have plans to triple or even quadruple their ICU capacity if needs be. But one step down from that, we've got more people who are requiring non-invasive ventilation like CPAP. So we've got a, a couple of respiratory wards now where a lot of those sicker people are and we've expanded our higher monitoring unit beds for all those people who aren't quite sick enough to go to ICU. But I think I think our experience in a lot of places is that it's almost like outside of the emergency department and the very hot COVID wards and ICU, it, there's a bit of a phony wall because hospitals have gone from 95% bed occupancy down often to 50, 60, 70%. So we've actually still got some spare capacity outside those very um, pressurized areas. And the final thing I'd say is obviously the staff are uh, understandably frightened because they know that other health professionals have got sick. They're worried about protective equipment. And what's been amazing to me is seeing how people come into work every day, quite worried about their own welfare, worried about their own family. But because of the professional values and the commitment to patient care and the commitment to the team, it's just they've got on with it. And uh, and that's been extraordinary to see and, and kind of reaffirmed, I think, what the values of the health services in the four UK nations are all about. Now, Matt, you, you're, uh, you're in intensive care. How is it? How is it there? Well, I echo many of the things David has said, and there will be subtle differences. I work in Wales, which has a devolved health system, so there are subtle differences in timing, for example, of when elective surgery was cancelled and so on. But in many ways, everything has changed, and yet nothing has changed at the same time. You know, we'll come on later, perhaps, to things around best interests and decision-making, and we are not currently in a resource-limited setting, certainly in the hospital I work. So in many ways, nothing has changed in terms of those things. But at the same time, it's been the world's greatest jigsaw puzzle over the last few months. And that has involved changing round pieces relating to space, equipment and staff predominantly. Uh, we've Our beds have gone up dramatically, probably gone up four times or more we have capacity and resource to go up even greater than that we're in different pockets of the hospital where we've never delivered critical care before but we're now able to deliver it safely and the staffing models are are radically different uh, including more consultant delivered care including collaborating with dental students medical students nurses from other areas so say in many ways everything has changed but the fundamentals of care delivery uh, in a way hasn't changed and just on that um you have four times the the capacity you did you're doing more consultant-led care in in critical care but presumably you don't have suddenly four times as many um consultants so how are you how are you actually managing that um to cover that that extra space well, critical illness is a specialty and a disease that many other groups of doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals have loads of skills to do already, actually. And we have a really strong physiotherapy team in Cardiff who are skilled with deciding things like tracheostomies. We have a psychological service in Cardiff run by a psychologist who has led with family contact, for example. So there's lots of aspects of the role of a consultant which uh, can be delivered safely, effectively, and sometimes better, actually, than we can. And we've really engaged with those other services as much as we can. Our job plans 
are radically different. You know, the slate has been wiped clean, and we're just all delivering the maximum amount of clinical care as we can, regardless of what your other strings may be, education or, or research, in my mind. Plus, we are working across departments more and more with departments like anaesthesia, who have a huge range of critical care skills to give, uh, ED, medicine, uh, and a huge amount of others. So we've really expanded our group. A lot of borders have been broken down, and it, it, feels, it feels collegiate. Uh, David, Matt there was talking about that kind of the de-siloing within medicine, but you also mentioned that you're able to work more with uh, social care, and that's been something that people within the NHS have wanted to do for a long time. So it seems out of this crisis that there maybe is some positivity around uh, getting some things done that that have just been sticky before. Well, I think that's right. Um, we have to be careful, of course, because... What's happened is there has been, um, as part of the Coronavirus Act in England, some additional funding put into social care. But there's also been a relaxation around the permissions and the rules that were able to fast track people into social care settings uh, without the usual assessments and processes and eligibility stuff and get all of those placements initially funded out of the same uh, pot of money. So it's good that we're able to cut through uh, some of the usual bureaucratic delays and red tape. But out there in the community, things might look a bit different. They might be proud of what they're doing to respond and support the NHS. But for instance, care homes that had spare capacity have now had to take lots of people very quickly with no uplift in their staffing. And we know that there's a lot of care homes that have coronavirus and all the residents having to be isolated in single rooms, a lot of work for the staff. And we know that um, social care, you know, home care workers going from house to house haven't always had the right protective equipment. And there have been some concerns that by doing this fast track funding, we're actually depriving people of their usual rights to assessment. So for me, I think it has been great to see us getting rid of all the, the red tape and the delays and being slicker and quicker and working closely with our community partners. And they in turn have certainly stepped up to help the NHS. But I think when we come to evaluate all of these initiatives when the pandemic's over, we do have to look at it through their eyes as well. And we have to think how much of what they did differently was because of short-term funding and an end uh, to usual permissions and what kind of impact it had on their own uh, workload and workforce uh, and morale. But I hope there is some positive learning to come out of this, yeah. And... Uh, on that, the fact that this there's been this short term so kind of stepping up um, of staff in the NHS and and support from out with it, you know, people are able to step up in the in the short term, but um, but long term that seems you know more difficult. People are worried about burnout and things. Um, do you feel like the what you have at the moment is is sustainable? Um, well I think there's good and bad, you see. I think what it has shown to me is that if you liberate uh, clinicians, clinical leaders, cl clinician managers, and those operational general managers on the front line, if you let them get on with it, we can actually be just as adaptable, just as innovative as anybody in the private sector or the military or anything. This has happened over weeks. Let the people with the clinical knowledge get on and they'll show you this narrative that we're on the sidelines, we're not interested in leadership, we're enemies of progress has been disproved. 
and that's great to see. And I think there will be some learning about, for instance, more remote consulting rather than just outpatient work um, and uh, slicker, quicker access to community services. But of course, there's a whole load of people, patients who have potentially been orphaned by the coronavirus at the moment. All those people expecting their elective surgery, all those people expecting their cancer follow-up outpatients who aren't getting it. And, And also the case mix of people coming through the doors has changed. We're not seeing as many people with chest pain or TIAs, whatever. So you do have to wonder about what's happened to some of those people that are maybe staying away from hospital. Um, so I think I think there's definitely learning to be had from the clinical leadership and the innovation. But clearly, the NHS is about more than acute adult care. And we can't have a situation long term where all of the other work uh, stops and everybody else is redeployed. It's going to be about distilling some of the good uh, things that we've learned. For instance, just the interface between us and, and the work Matt does, we should absolutely be getting advanced care plans, do not resuscitate decisions, uh, etc. done upstream. We shouldn't be leaving it just to a out-of-hours critical care outreach team who arrive on the scene. And that's the kind of thing, for instance, when it's all over, we should be embedding more of uh, with everybody so these hard decisions are not made uh, on the hoof. Mm. Matt, how about you? Do you feel like what you're doing is sustainable? Well, there's a there's a great quote from a Leveller's song that a colleague told me after my last night shift, which seemed to go on forever, and he said, there's never been a day that lasts forever. There's never a night shift that lasts forever, and hopefully there'll never be a pandemic that lasts forever. You know, this will finish to some degree. It probably won't be an abrupt stop as if we were first promised. It will probably be a, a cindering out. Um and I think, you know, that brings lots of things. It brings hope. You know, there's research going on. There's vaccination trials. We've learnt a huge amount. But it does need a reckoning of those other issues that David spoke about. It shows what we can do with resource and time and skills and leadership decisions being allowed to be made by us. But it, it's a bit of a false promise right now because those other chronic diseases not being managed. And of course, the best way to get out of ICU alive with a good quality of life is not to get there in the first place. Uh, and the way not to get there in the first place is to concentrate on those other aspects of care before the front door, chronic disease management, advanced decision making. So th- there'll be a tipping point where they are on level peg in and there'll be a point at which you know, more resource needs to go back into that chronic disease management. But I guess deciding that is, is hard. And I think well, there is an issue that's arisen from, well, we knew about the Operation Cygnus uh, 2015-16 report on pandemic preparedness. So it was already highlighted we didn't have enough capacity in uh, ICU and ventilated beds. And as Matt knows better than I do, I think our UK capacity is, I think, 6.4 per 100,000 ICU beds compared to other countries who have twice that, Germany who have four times that, albeit they don't have the same high standards for one-to-one nursing. And I think there there will be something for me about capacity both in ICU and that one level down of HMU-type beds when we come out of this is should we be running at such low capacity all the time or do we need a radical change in terms of workforce and capacity so we've got more headroom? Because even before the pandemic, uh, there's often a a scrabble for scarce um, ICU beds. So I think there's there's something as well about 
some of the structural issues around workforce gaps, around bed capacity and so forth, um, around capacity and services outside hospitals that we do need to learn from because it strikes me that very little was done on the back of that report on pandemic preparedness uh, three or four years ago, and we're slightly reaping that the harvest. Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. Those figures, you know, the UK has one of the lowest number of beds per 100,000 for critical care or level one beds compared to the rest of Europe. And uh, it makes me reflect that the hardest bit of my day outside of COVID, the most stressful bit of my day outside COVID, the thing that you know makes me have a glass of wine at night or, or shout at the dog when I get home, it isn't the medicine. You know, it's not what drug to use. It's not it's not even the difficult conversation sometimes with families. Now, those are things we are trained to do. They are things we're passionate about, which is why we go into this specialty. It's those issues of capacity. It's those issues of managing the risk of someone you didn't admit to critical care, who's on the ward that will give you a sleepless night. Did they get admitted at three in the morning? And that all boils down to the fact that you know there isn't enough room in the system to do that. Now, There'll never be a magic answer, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 beds per 100,000 won't make all that go away, but it will certainly change that balance. Mm. Now, talking about that that difficulty around, you know, clinical decision making, one thing that we're seeing a lot of um, is uncertainty around treatment for this. It's a brand new virus, it doesn't seem to behave in exactly the same way as um, other respiratory ones do. Uh, there, there are questions around, you know, what kind of supportive care actually works. So that must make what you're doing in critical care, Matt, quite difficult. It is a very odd disease, a fascinating disease, if it hadn't been so terrifying. And just to talk a little about the science, the pathophysiology, I guess, you know, this isn't, this almost isn't a viral problem this isn't a viral pneumonia this is an immunological phenomenon that we are seeing or a vascular phenomenon that we are seeing it behaves very oddly although of course i see a very strange subselection of patients the one who don't get better and it's still true that for the vast majority of patients they don't need a ventilator they'll they will get better but yet you're right there's still huge amounts of uncertainty about supportive care but ultimately you know we don't currently have a treatment you know the only thing we have in intensive care we mentioned at the beginning is time you know you support the body's vital functions with supportive care be it air blown in through CPAP be it a ventilator be it ECMO and you give time for the patient's own body and immune system to get better obviously what we need is a treatment that works Uh, there are a huge number of trials going on we're running uh, three at the minute in Cardiff, recovery trial, remap cap, using drugs from anti-malarials to antivirals. The vaccination trial in Oxford is recruiting healthy volunteers already, but we're still in a place today, you know, on the 14th of April, that we do not have a treatment. All we have is the ability to give people time. When it comes to that that clinical decision-making, that, that uncertainty, uh, is that affecting your team is affecting how you work well in many ways i said at the beginning everything's changed and nothing has changed those decisions about who would benefit from coming to critical care and having invasive 
technologies and invasive procedures, which also carry harm, of course. Now, that conversation is the same. It's about balancing a best interest decision. It's about finding out patients' wishes, if you can. Uh, It's about doing the things with a team, not as an individual, that you think are the best thing for the patient in front of you. And we haven't entered that resource-limited setting that changes those uh, those the mechanics of that decision really it's currently the same as it was yeah that, that's in fact i've written a piece in the financial times that should be out tomorrow talking about just this now which mm-hmm. is that stuff that we've always done and we should have been doing more of advanced care planning respect decisions about uh you know um treatment escalation dna cpr decisions deciding on who gets to intensive care based on their own wishes and goals, but also on their chance of survival, not any kind of judgment about their worth to society, quality of life. We've always done that. And it just happens to be in the media spotlight now. We've always had a a push not to convey lots of care home people into hospital. And And I think that the kind of Armageddon situation that happened in Lombardy, where the intensivists were having to make decisions between two people, both of whom might usually have accessed ICU or been ventilated. I'm not aware even in London that we've quite hit that point yet because of that big expansion in capacity. If we do get to that point where we're having to weigh up between two individuals, both of whom could benefit, that would be a different scenario. But what Matt says is right. We're not there yet. All we're doing is doing more of what we've always done for more people. Yeah, well, I think what we've done, like you mentioned earlier about efficiency and impactful interventions we are concentrating on those evidence-based impactful interventions that we know make a big difference so the early use of proning laying on your front for example the use of safe ventilation six mils per kilo you know we're really hammering home those things and the things which actually don't have evidence base anyway which would normally take up a lot of time and thought and paperwork they don't have an evidence basis anyway so let's concentrate on the impactful interventions that do uh, and just going back to the, those discussions about uh, advanced care planning and so on you know i lo- wrote this letter uh, letter from icu which you know the the truth of it was i wrote it for my parents who are in their mid 70s they're in an at risk group my brother in law has got severe long term health conditions you know i wrote that letter for them actually not for anybody else I've had a huge amount of great support back, written letters and so on. I've also had a, a lot of people who, you know, reading that made them feel perhaps anxious, made them cross about those discussions happening in certain groups. But I promise you, having those discussions when the seas are calm, you know, reading that on a screen when you're sitting at home, thinking about the issues, that is so much easier than having those discussions at the end of a phone at three in the morning when a loved one is critically ill and they are hard topics and they will stir strong feelings and that's a good thing it's not a bad thing but equally it means they are more important than ever to talk about yeah absolutely thank you um the latest data from the ons just uh received this morning um, looks like the the death rate, um, there's an excess death rate uh, at, at the moment. Um, a proportion of it uh, is associated with COVID and there seems to be uh, a, a chunk that's not. Now, I just wonder, um, David, from your point of view, uh, 
does that data concern you? Does that sort of imply that perhaps you're not seeing the people that you might have expected to see uh, during this? Well, I, I, I'm not an expert on the epidemiology, and I think others probably you interview in the in the series of podcasts may have more expertise. Um, I think what we're seeing in acute hospitals is large numbers of people coming in who do have COVID-19. It's probably a a quarter to a third of our adult bed base at the moment. And um, some of them it's just incidentally picked up. Plenty of them do have classical um, symptoms where they do start to get breathless and feverish. And a subset of them do develop severe oxygen requirements and and, and go on to get uh, acute respiratory distress uh, and die. Uh, so we certainly are seeing people dying from acute respiratory failure far more than I would in the normal course of my working life, even with a flu pandemic. But of course, the government <clears throat> at its daily briefings has been reporting deaths in hospital. And it's not been reporting until pressure was put on it, the ONS data on uh, deaths outside hospital and both Matt and I are acute hospital doctors so we're seeing one spectrum uh, I know that in countries that have been collecting data on deaths in the community then people over 80 account for you know in Italy and Sweden people over 80 are accounting for half the deaths and an awful lot of the deaths have been in places like residential care homes or age-friendly housing now you could argue that those people in the last year or two of their life anyway might have died from another infection uh, but I, I think it's beyond, I mean, it's beyond doubt we're having more people who are becoming critically ill, more people are dying from respiratory problems in hospital and more people uh, dying in those vulnerable groups than we usually would. But I haven't, I haven't dug into the, the data. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't comment on the community statistics uh, and even the statistics in an area like critical care where... We are collecting blood pressures every second, every minute. We have an amazing national audit called ICNARC that collects data. Now, even that data is probably too early to say. All we have is the percentage of people who are discharged from the intensive care unit and the percentage of people who die. What we don't know is what happens to those thousands who are still there. And so there are mortality figures being quoted of 50% in some places using that ICNARC data. But that, you know, that isn't the full story. This is just people discharged or people who have died. I guess the other important thing to say is people do get better. You know, we don't bring patients to intensive care unless we think there's a chance of them getting through this. And every day when I'm working, there are people being extubated uh, from ventilators, sometimes after being on a ventilator for a week or more there are patients go into the ward from intensive care and there are patients who people are really worried about who are prone in themselves spontaneously breathing or having CPAP or having other therapies who don't come to intensive care so you know I think a message for well professionals and others listening out there is you know there is hope and that's even before these research trials report to even before you know a vaccination is ready. So it seems from this the the message that uh, I'm getting from both of you is actually, um, despite concerns about uh, secondary care being overwhelmed at the moment, we're actually in in not a bad place, and uh, and you guys feel like you've you've got this. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think when it first hit, it, for for instance. When we were splitting emergency 
apartments into hot and cold areas and the numbers of hot patients with suspected corona started going up, it, it was pretty uncomfortable. I, but I think there are certain areas of hospitals that are under pressure, possibly emergency departments, certainly uh, those level one carriers and those wards where a lot of the COVID-19 patients are cohorted because it can be a very demanding and scary place to work, not only because you're at risk of infection yourself, but because you're working with protective gear on all the time, which is hot and uncomfortable. You can't communicate with your colleagues very well. You can't communicate with patients very well. Um, uh, their relatives can't come in. And a lot of distressed, vulnerable older people who are bewildered by the lack of visitors and by everybody dressed like Darth Vader. And, you know, so, but, but there are other areas of hospitals that are still well down on the usual occupancy, actually, and still have spare capacity, partly because of that incredible work to... Uh, expand the acute bed base and work with community partners so it it can feel like a bit of a a, a phony war um, but at the same time I mean I, I spent a, a Saturday working in an entirely COVID-19 area where there weren't very many nurses where a lot of the patients were old and vulnerable and several people were dying and their families couldn't come in I, I wouldn't I mean we're, we're in the first four or five weeks of this I wouldn't underestimate the impact on the staff as people start to get it themselves as colleagues. I mean, one of my consultant colleagues died where I work who did have pre-existing conditions, but, but people know that in Italy, one in 10 of the um, patients admitted were staff. So I think that kind of thing is going to take its toll about the fear and the fear of taking it back to one's own family and the distressing scenarios people uh, are seeing. And of course, Matt and his colleagues who are steeped in ICU are used to seeing some of these things. But for those staff who are drafted in from other areas, it might be a bit of a, a shock for them as well. So I think, yeah, we're coping. And I'm hoping, I mean, the most likely area to get overwhelmed by demand is obviously intensive care, even if it is expanded three or four, four, but it hasn't happened yet. It's come close in London. So I think if we can go through the next two or three weeks uh, and we still have capacity in the general wards and we still have some capacity in ICU, we might come out the other side of this um, in better shape than we imagine. And I do, uh, and I wrote about this in my column two weeks ago. I think there's a bit too much of a rush to judge at the moment. Of course, there have been mistakes in a government policy about protective equipment supply chains or testing or whether we, we started the lockdown too late. But now is the wrong time to judge how well we handle this. You might find in September that uh, it's actually been a heroic effort and the NHS didn't get overwhelmed and we got out the other side of it. So I think my my focus at the moment is on pragmatic, real-time uh, solutions that are going to help patients and help staff and not finding individuals to blame because I'm, I'm not sure any of us would necessarily want to be a senior official in the government or a minister at the moment mm -hmm. uh, with such an impossible set uh, of decisions to make yeah and just echoing those words you know we're absolutely not saying this is okay you know this is the biggest challenge i've ever faced the biggest challenge perhaps the nhs uh, and the world has ever faced in many ways and there have been tragic cases already not only staff and people we work with and people we know but of course for families of individual patients you know this is not okay uh, but at the minute there is capacity uh, the planning 
has shown benefit and you know we don't know what next week or the week after or the week after that is going to say but I think it's important to retain hope even if that's kind of honest hope uh, there's undoubtedly going to be some degree of moral injury as well as uh, you know bodily injury and that's for families sadly and that's for staff as David said not used to being confronted with this kind of level of loss really um, and that's going to be you know that's going to be a big story uh, when when the dust settles on the actual infection rate actually how will that impact on families and staff uh, going forward i guess one other thing to say also is it's okay to be happy on times you know our rotors change hugely we work in a huge amount of hours it was my wife's birthday yesterday uh, and we had a nice day the sun was shining. Uh, we we spent some time with friends over the internet on Zoom. Uh, we had a glass of wine, and it's it's important to remember to still try to find joy, even though things are tough, especially for staff involved in this. And it's okay, you know. Don't feel guilty about finding joy. Well, in fact, I think I mean I, I'm in the habit of uh, doing gra- a gratitude list just as part of my mental well-being, really. And you know, what what do I have to be grateful for? And you know. So many other people in other walks of life have lost their livelihood um, or lost their business. And at least we have free movement, albeit to and from the hospital. At least we've got steady, secure employment. And at least we're doing a job that the general public respects. And I'd much rather be able to say that I was there and I was in the thick of it than running away from it. Uh, and and I think there's a lot of joy in um, uh as I say, the camaraderie and the, the kind of gallows humor and the mutual support amongst the staff. Cause, and it, for me, I mean, I, I'm in my mid fifties. I've been a doctor for 31 years, been a consultant for 22 years. I was probably to an extent losing some of my enthusiasm for the actual clinical medicine, because you get to a point where you know what you're doing and you, you can do it competently, but you're a bit going through the motions. And it's weirdly revived my, my passion for the actual clinical job because you're, you're very clear that you're doing something really useful and really worthwhile and really valued and one thing we didn't talk about is how a whole load of the the usual tedious bureaucracy and paperwork and add-ons have all vanished people you know appraisal and job planning and governance and all that stuff is out the window now because people's entire focus is on clinicians and managers working together to deliver care to patients and keep the system running. So it's, while I was just on the cusp of thinking how much longer do I want to go on doing this, it's actually um, revived my interest. I think the hardest thing for me is my wife, who's not a doctor, not a clinician, is worried about me dying. (laughs) And she doesn't really want to hear that I spend all day, every day on wards full of people with coronavirus. And and I think there is that stuff. about worrying about taking it home isn't there and the impact it might have on your family but no i think there is a lot of joy to be found in in the work because it's it's valuable needed societally appreciated uh, work Mm -hmm. you've been listening to david oliver and matt morgan talk about life in hospital during covid19 david and matt will be continuing to write for us and i've linked to their columns on the podcast text so you can find out more there. As I said at the beginning, we're going to be hearing from more of our regular writers. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. 
Coming up later this week, we have more well-being content, some advice for secondary care from primary care about doing remote consultations. We'll also have more talk evidence, this time looking at the latest data on death rates and what that means. For more on the COVID-19 outbreak, go to bmj.com coronavirus, where you'll find all of our content available for free. So until tomorrow, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.